So it's just us two? Oh, I doubt it. I think we're just the first here. Hmm. I could either do this or uh, dig up my side yard. Yes. Uh, is that something you have to do several times a year? Just the fall, we usually go through and pull the old plants and reseed areas that are, you know, starving and stuff like that. So, so gotcha. we, we we actually hired somebody this this year. Uh, he's a guy we know, so we we wanted to give him a, a deal. So he's doing it, but I'm supposed to be out there working with him. But I decided to do this instead. And I see we're joined by Ryan now. Hey, Ryan. Hello. Hey, Norton. Hey, Ellie. Can you guys hear me? Yes. I hear you fine. All right. My I was somehow I turned my volume off. How are you guys doing this week? Um, kind of weird okay. because it's um, September 11th and I find it kind of awful that people are like saying how wonderful it is and you know that's just not how I feel about it but no um and I think we should probably get into that um since it kind of fell close to today's call um it was an interesting celebration yesterday I listened to a lot of NPR remembrances um from 9-11 from New York I think I think my wife was li listening to WNYC, so the local NPR affiliate in New York. And uh, it was all day programming for the most part. And uh, it was overwhelming at, at times. And uh, I'm glad we didn't listen to the entire day's broadcasting because it got to be a little much. Um, just remembering so much um, firsthand stories and stuff. But uh, welcome everyone to the No Name Podcast. My name is Ryan Warner. I'm joined by Dustin and Ellie. Special guest Norton today. Welcome everyone. It's been a couple of weeks since we spoke, me and Dustin spoke, and about a month, I think, since Ellie joined us, and maybe more than a month since Norton joined us. So welcome everyone back. Uh, it's been um, a nice, uh, I guess, early fall, late late summer, a couple of weeks, and now we're back at it. And um, I want to open it up, I guess, here in the beginning to just some check-in thoughts. How's everyone, uh, everyone been doing? And uh, Norton, you want to start it off today? Well, like I said, it's uh, been a kind of a weird week because of all the stuff going on with Texas and, you know, and I don't know. It's, it's just getting more and more ominous in my mind because of the, um, you know, they're, they're so willing to... Uh, control a woman's body, but they're not willing to do anything about gun control or vaccine or masks, but, you know, let those people die. But I don't know. It's, to me, it's so hip, ungodly. Well, it's so hypocritical. I guess it's godly in a way. <laughs> way it is, but it's uh, so freaking weird. You know, we, we we want to control the uterus, but we let everything just slide. I can uh, check in. I have been pretty busy. It's 
back to school season, um, which also coincides with one of my stepdaughter's birthdays. Um, so just a lot going on and a lot of different fronts. Um, work always revs up this time of year because a lot of work that I do tends to follow an academic calendar, even though my I am a 12 month employee, just there's so many, there's so much about the academic calendar that impacts so much work um, that I, I have to accommodate other people's rhythms. And, um, but I, I like that. I, I kind of get into the cyclical rhythm of the year. Um, I will have a column come out this coming week. And um, I'm hoping it's, <laughs> um, you know, it's not often that the editorial team at the Bismarck Tribune changes what I right? Um, doesn't happen too often. I'm hoping this one can go through as is, but we'll see. It's a little, a little edgy at moments, um, but it's basically about how the um, ND PERS insurance plan via Samford has changed and um, uh, hormonal contraception is now covered for folks on the grandfathered plan. And that is mostly state employee type of people. So um, interestingly, before it was only those uh, medications were only approved if you were using them for some reason other than contraception. So using them to manage pain or excessive bleeding. Um, but if you lacked that kind of a rationale, it could not be covered. Um, and if you did have that kind of a reason, you had to uh, repeatedly demonstrate it with paperwork, phone calls, you know, between Sanford and your doc, like it, then your efforts would expire and you'd have to do it again. And it was awful. I've lived it. So it's awful. I hated it. It's uh, very exciting that now we can just acknowledge that a medication, um, first of all, pa uh, patients shouldn't be jerked around so much and um, be made to feel like their medication is going to be denied and they're going to have a gap in their coverage until they can um, figure out their paperwork. So that's unnerving. Um, but also my argument in my column that's gonna come out is that it's just, it's a health decision to be open to pregnancy or to avoid pregnancy. Like it's, it's a, pregnancy is a health issue. It's a health experience. It's dangerous. It's arduous. It changes your health needs substantially. So wanting to be pregnant or not is a health decision and therefore contraception is health care. And it's just weird and sexist that we just like had this arbitrary, like, no, you cannot, uh, we cannot cover it for this purpose as if it's not health to, you know, relate it, just, just completely absurd. So I just kind of say in my piece, I explained the change. I explained what the past situation was and Basically, I'm like, good, good riddance. I'm like, welcome to the 21st century. So I'm excited about that one coming out. I had been actually inclined to write a column fussing about this absurdity, and they, they beat me uh, by fixing this uh, after I've been upset about it for a couple of years. Um, so it got, it got fixed before I had to rant about it. Um, I'm going to rant about it kind of retrospectively, though, but also just I also want all the state employees who got so discouraged because they didn't have access to these prescriptions to now know they do have access now. So I also consider it a bit of a uh, public service announcement that I, at the end of the column, I say, you may wish to visit, visit with your doctor if you've been previ previously denied uh, coverage because uh, it's available to you now. So 
<sighs> small win for state employees with um, who have a uterus. So that's good. And yeah, I guess just um, I'm also kind of mentally debriefing after my panel and where the arguments I want to make about constitutional measure reform, like what kind of arguments I want to keep carrying forward. And uh, I am eventually this will become a column or something. But right now I'm also uh, really working on the idea the that the uh, initiated measure pro process, it's, you know, some folks imply that it's reckless and that, it, you know, um, it allows ordinary people to be like a mob and just run amok. And we need the elites to check us and our crazy ideas. And I want to demonstrate like just how most measures are on their face, like reasonable and not like hella authoritarian or, you know, you can disagree with them, but they're not like human rights crushing and I want to identify the legislative proposals, you know, the bills and, so, and you know, also note which ones passed that were like crushing human rights. And so the idea that the people need to check on them and then we're the wacky wild ones, you know, just going to push through some crazy crap doesn't isn't actually borne out by the facts. Like the craziest crap continues to come specifically from the legislature. So that is also the intellectual flavor I'm in uh, lately with that. Elliot, I got, excuse me, I got one uh, follow-up question. How did, uh, what was the impetus to make the change? Do you know uh, the story of why it oh, was yeah. changed? It's rich. Um, so Samford actually came forward to the NDPERS board of trustees and was like, hey, uh, we spent all this like labor trying to deny people this coverage, scrutinizing them. Um, but ultimately it basically never gets denied. So we do all this work for nothing and we've done the math and this would be perfectly affordable for us. No premium change for you guys. Like it's all the same. If we just cover it for anyone at the uh, standard member car share rate. And just to, to clarify, um, the only reason that it's not 100% covered is because it's a grandfathered plan, which you know, so they're not impacted by the Affordable Care Act, um, then that means that they're not required to do 100% coverage. So it'll be a cost share like any other medication. So like what I pay right now um, to manage my uh, chronic pain issues and whatnot, um, I, I'll probably, someone who just takes it for contraception is probably gonna pay the same rate I do, which I consider the rate reasonable. Um, so yeah, so it's going to be cost shared now, uh, because Sanford said it was good business and the board of trustees, you know, the, obviously my union has been telling the board of trustees, wow, I remember they're pretty unhappy about this for like a long time, but it took, <laughs> it took the board of trustees hearing that it was just good business, uh, to make this change. So there you have it, folks. Sexism is a waste of money and a waste of, <laughs> uh, corporate labor. Um, so yeah, reason ruled the day. And I, I think it's kind of, it's, it's nice that I can just, I wish they'd listen to us sooner, but I kind of like the final story and which, what actually moved the needle, because I think it's important to demonstrate to people, this is a perfectly fiscally responsible decision. 
Ellie, I, I, I would wonder if your public service announcement wouldn't open the door to the certain legislators who would take the opportunity then of not of otherwise not knowing about the change to all of a sudden make it their new grievance of the month and bring it into the special session and try to reverse I it legislatively. Because remember, Sanford got the health plan because of legislative action. It wasn't because of business decisions. So um, uh, the, the, you know, there, there's kind of, you, you might have a Pandora's box there, just, just so you know. Yeah, I appreciate the occurred to me, like maybe level of specificity that you just provided. It occurred to me that this could result in something weird. I did share the full draft with um, Chad O'Ban and Nick Archuleta. And I, I know that they wouldn't really feel great about telling me as a private individual, don't publish this. So I know they would not jump to telling me that. But if they thought that they're, if they really saw this becoming an issue, and not that they're right about everything. They could think it's not an issue, and it is. But they have not said anything to dissuade me. So, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And, and for me, it's one of those things where, oh, this is kind of hard to explain, but, like, I exercise more restraint than people realize every single day. And I am quiet about so much more than people even know. And if I'm you know, thought of as a big mouth, people don't even know what more I'd like to mouth off about. And sometimes <laughs> I can't just like, there's a time where I'm like, you know what, this might have consequences, but it's time, it's time. And so I'm just gonna bring it up even though it brings risk. So like I manage risk a lot, but I just have to just let a little bit of risk in sometimes for some things that are just so lame and old fashioned and unbelievably like doofusy that like, I just have to, so I'm going to I'm going to go in with that calculated risk, but I appreciate your aim to make me aware of possible consequences. Yes, because I, I know how these people think. I, I know how these the, the the people that you would be fighting against on this thing, probably more so than, you know, uh, Chad and Nick, uh, as far as the, just the gut reaction is, uh oh, somebody's going to come in and try to reverse it like. It, it, because then it'll play into all their other narratives and and you know so i mean i i i would bet a six-pack that somebody either the next special or or the regular will will try to do something on this to to make it worse for you and i think another thing to just um provide us a little bit of context just there are some people in my orbit who are going to start moving forward on um kind of normalizing some messaging regarding abortion as actually just healthcare and like trying to desensationalize it and being like, it's a thing that people need sometimes. And I know that's going to happen down the road. And so I kind of also feel like my, I have this role to start with contraception and cause I know there are people who like, they can get on board with contraception, but not abortion. And like, I want to grab those people too. Like, you know, just, like if we're on the same page with contraception as healthcare, even though we're not on the same page with abortion, let's let's be on the same page with this. And yeah. and so I'm trying to kind of like gather the people who, you know, so I see what you're saying, too. But there's something to be said for throwing this out there so that when other people want to keep discussing relevant issues, someone has like broken the ice 
So yeah, it could be a shit show. This could like, especially now that I'm saying there's this totally opposite side that's going to be doing stuff too. Um, it, yeah, <laughs> but I think, you know what, honestly, because of what's going on in Texas, I, I think we have a lot of shit show coming down the path anyway. And so it might, my little contribution might even be a drop in the bucket ultimately. The shit show never ends. <laughs> it's kind of like the Barney song. It's a little cyclical though. It has these, you know, it has these periods of explosive yeah. energy. Yeah. Well, I, I've been working on lo local uh, tax policy issues uh, on the Renaissance Zone <clears throat> Committee for Bismarck. Uh, I was appointed to the Boundary Change Subcommittee, and the Renaissance Zone has existed now for 14 years. They've never actually developed a comprehensive plan to show both developers and the other political subdivisions that they're trying to exempt tax from uh, where they want to go with the, the zone. And they've never really uh, been able to do much more than chase the desires and whims of, of developers who want to build in one area or another. And uh, so what, what I proposed and the direction that we seem to be going is let's develop a, a math-based metric for which blocks would be best for redevelopment and uh, you know, literally make a map of, of areas that we, beyond where the existing exemptions are available, where we would uh, potentially be willing to go as a city uh, if developers wanted to go there. And, and then also uh, itemizing the blocks that are in the current exemption zone, which should be taken out when, when those expansions happen. Uh, a lot of this, uh, this issue, uh, the, they really have historically literally used a dartboard approach to which blocks they should put in, which they shouldn't put in, uh, basically based on some emotional feel for which blocks look the worst rather than which blocks are, um, are the, you know, lowest value, lowest tax producing plus the highest potential for redevelopment. Um, and so, uh, you know, basically trying to develop a system by scratch that nobody thought in the last 14 years needed to be developed. So that's always fun. It sounds good, Dustin. It sounds like you're just going based off property, um, property assessment values in the, in, in the city and then figuring out, you know, ranking them from best to worst or highest to lowest and, and then trying to using the lowest ones as kind of the ones that should be next in line. Yeah, yeah, basically that. But but then also figuring that sometimes a block that has low values is has low values because it was intended to have low values, like Main Street uh, east of 12th Street and west of 26th. That whole area was never meant to be highly valued. It, people have businesses there because when that was developed, it was cheap land. Uh, there was nothing there. It was, you know, kind of a, a warehouse slash store slash, uh, you know, industrial zone. And while it is unfortunate because there is a lot of open land there that could be redeveloped, uh, the likelihood that it would ever be is very low because the businesses that 
are using that property have no interest in having more expensive property. Uh, and so between that and then also the issues of gentrification, which obviously a tax exemption policy by its very nature is going to create gentrification. Like that's the goal actually is to take a property that's worth a hundred thousand dollars a day and turn it into a million dollar property because you, you tenfold the city's revenue that way. Uh, and so these, these programs that exist and, you know, philosophically I'm against the idea of exempting property, but if we're going to have the programs in place, we, we should have a system and a metric to determine which blocks are the best for applying it to so that we're not chasing developers' whims, uh, but rather they are chasing the desires of the city. I think that's a, a good idea. I mean, just from the kind of a, a more objective um, metric to determine where Renaissance zone falls or doesn't fall. I've looked at the map before and was confused <laughs> why, why it was picked such in such a fashion. Um, I think you're right. It was kind of, kind of just eyeballs. You just eyeball a piece of land and you're like, yeah, this, this qualifies. That seemed, seemingly that's what it was. And um, initially it was designed, initially cities only had like 25 blocks to work with. And so that was all downtown. And over the years, <laughs> Uh, the legislature's given them more blocks to work with. Uh, and I've obviously in the past, I've, I've opposed those at the legislative level uh, because I thought that, you know, the city should figure out how to work with what it has rather than taking more property off the rolls. Uh, but yeah, it has expanded out east. They, uh, when I first got onto the, the board, uh, they added in the area the industrial area just south of bruno's pizza those six blocks yep. just total speculation <laughs> based on nothing they added those in um and i said those those areas other than you know bistro and laughing sun which had already used their whatever uh incentives that they could those other areas have no interest because you know the mechanical uh industrial shops that if they wanted more space or a newer building, they would move out wet, uh, out east to, you know, where there's land you know, uh, closer to Lincoln. Uh, they're, they are in those spots because that's what they've had all these years. That's all they need. Uh, and, and they're never going to change, you know, they're never going to need anything more until their building falls down. So, uh, you know, this idea that, well, that block looks bad, so we'll put it in the system and hope somebody does something with it. That's how they've been running, and that's not really a good way to make policy. Yeah, it's just it's ripe for some sort of corruption or back dealing. Back, back it is, but it, no, more more importantly, it, it is it is ripe for just you know nothing to happen. And if you're going to use these things, you should be using them in areas where you are pretty sure that something could happen. Right. Uh, otherwise there's no point, you know, and, and my goal in, in moving these blocks outward and, and ending the uh, exemption where they are now for the last 15 years is if a, if a property's had it for 15 years and they haven't used the, the incentive, they're probably not going to. And if they're going to sell it, it's going to be years down the road and that person may or may not use it. So we can't make our, 
public decisions based on what private individuals may or may not do. So let's move the zone in a in a programmatic way, give blocks, say, 36 months uh, in the zone uh, to, to decide whether in, any properties on that block are, are worthy of, of upgrading and uh, keep it moving, give more people an opportunity for the exemption. And if you give more people an opportunity for the exemption, then that increases the fairness because you're not con concentrating the tax benefit to a certain number of people downtown. Yeah, that's a good argument. Um, I hope they continue to, to uh, go in that direction, Dustin. Um, I've got a lot of disparate, uh, <laughs> disparate check-in thoughts. I'll try to keep it brief. Um, as the listeners may know, I'm colorblind. So one thing that happened this week is that I was made aware that these um, blue stripe, blue lives matter flags that I've seen around town are in black and white, except for the blue stripe, which until until yesterday, I did not actually realize that. And I, uh, for everyone else that's seen, the, seen it and can see color, I'm sure this is old news, but uh, for me, it's new news. And uh, it's, it strikes me as very fascist, this, uh, this flag, this black and white flag with, with a blue mark down the middle. Like we've taken this great country and now we've black and whited it and put the blue stripe, which stands for the police, and uh, it made it the most prominent part of the flag, which seems bad. This seems like a bad thing to do, like a very, uh, something you'd see in, in, a, in a dystopian nightmare movie or something where the cops take over. So. Uh, I don't know. This it struck me when I was made aware. Someone was like, "You know, that's in black and white," and I was like, "Really? I've never noticed that." And then I went and looked at it, and when so for colorblind for people that aren't colorblind, it's more like color dyslexia. If I really focus on something, I can be like, "Oh yeah, that's not a color. That's red versus green or something." And so I went and looked at one and concentrated. I was like, "Oh yeah," and then I was like, "This is incredibly fascist." Why are they everywhere? They're everywhere. There's like a lot of them in Bismarck. I haven't counted them, but I, there's at least 10 that I know of. Have you ever tried those glasses that let colorblind people see? I've seen the I've seen the YouTube videos hyping them up, but I haven't. Oh, I know a guy in Fargo who got them and, he, you know, it, it he, he's like, is this what you guys have been seeing the whole time? <laughs> <laughs> if they actually, yeah, if they actually do work, it would be something. So, I guess I'm not too curious since I haven't bought them, but I'm also skeptical. So, Ryan, where's these flags? I guess I've never seen them. There's one on front right by the ballpark, the baseball park. There's one on um, Airport Road. Huh. They're usually stickers on trucks that, that have been uh, demodded de and, and had their emissions take off. So they make as much smoke as possible. Uh, that's where you predominantly will see them is, is the, the old diesel trucks that are rolling coal. Uh, that's the demographic. And then a lot of people have little stickers on their windows, you know, three by five stickers. But I mean, these flags have been, you know, the, the Blue Lives Matter flags have been around actually since long before the, the Black Lives Matter stuff started. It was... It actually started after 9-11, I believe. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, they, not, they, not the phrase Blue Lives Matter. Not the, the phrase. phrase is, the no. flag's been around for 20 years, though, with the blue find, line. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so confusing to me because I thought we weren't supposed to modify the flag. Like there was that whole, I, you know, I, I was reminded of it. I do. I do yeah. remember the era, but I was reminded of it because there's um, this ex, uh, explained show on Netflix and they have an episode on flags and yeah. they had this like old clip of Biden, like ranting about the the flag should bring unity. Like he's, he's angry at like the left in that moment. Um, and, and, you know, it's like, we used to not be able to modify it or do anything to it. So if it's so sacred, how can we just randomly change the colors? It's a bit weird to me. Um, yeah, that, uh, they glance over it when it's for their, uh, for an issue that they like. Um, uh, and that's probably why they turned it black and white was so that they can say, well, we're not changing the American flag. We, we turned it black and white and then added the blue line. And the funniest thing is, you know, the whole concept of a thin blue line is a reference to corruption. So, you know, <laughs> the idea of, of embracing the blue line as a, a pride thing is hilarious to anybody who know you know, has watched a mob movie since 1986. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't know that. I only ever knew it as, you know, the cops are the thin blue line between society, society functioning and societal collapse. I know that's that's the implication nowadays, I guess. I never knew that its original meaning implied any um, corruption. Hmm. The thin oh, blue yeah. line is you don't talk bad against your blue brothers. Yeah. That's the thin blue line. And if you know, it, it's it's kind of like, you know, the rapsters. uh uh, uh what is it? Uh, snitches get snitches or stitches. That's kind of like the, the cop version. Yeah, there was Serpico there, popularized that more than anything yeah. else. Serpico is a great movie, by the way. If anyone has, oh seen. yeah. No. Speaking of movies, there's a movie called The Thin Red, uh, the, Thin, the Thin Blue Line, which is a documentary about police corruption. I think it was in the late '90s, maybe it came out. Yeah, and then The Thin Red Line is a movie about Guadalcanal. So, uh, has anybody seen the flag on 19th Street? Which one? That, guy, that guy flies a fuck by Biden sign on 19th Street. And uh, it's, uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think something's wrong with our society anymore. I, I'm just. I agree. There's a, uh, since we're talking about things we see in Bismarck. There's a, when I go and drop off my kids at daycare, the next door neighbor has a truck that has a, a, an F Joe and the Ho sticker in the back window. And the, and the kid, that it's a kid, he's like 17. He's like, he's not even able to vote. And this is what he's putting on his pickup truck. It's insane. And the, that the neighborhood is just like, uh, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. And after 9-11, um, you know, the Dixie Chicks, were banned because they said that they were embarrassed about, uh, you know, about uh, Bush. And yet now we just have no issue with somebody completely degrading everybody, black, left and right. You know, I mean, it's just, there's no civil authority anymore. You know, there's no feeling of civil authority. So. So I guess that's my my fear is that uh, you know the autocracy is gonna is gonna win and uh, you know it's winning. 
Yeah, I um, I heard President Bush um, speak yesterday on some remarks on 9-11. I don't think he mentioned the Dixie Chicks, though. No. <laughs> the, the, the number one recipient of historical relativism due to Trump is George right, Yeah, no, I was, I was having that same thought. I was like, you know, when, when Bush said uh, history would judge him well, I remember when he said that, I was like, you're insane, Bush. There's no way we're going to forget what happened. <laughs> This is, you're going to live in infamy. And now 20 years later, I'm like, yeah, he was right. But for the wrong reasons, not the reasons right. he thought, different reasons that no one could contemplate at that time, but he was right. Yeah, we just lie to ourselves over and over again about, it, about all of this shit, you know? Well, I had I had one more check, check-in thought, um, and it's, it's, uh, it's about Heidi Heitkamp. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I don't know if anyone's been catching her efforts, but she's, um, I guess she's a lobbyist now. Uh, I wasn't aware of this, but um, she's been working to undermine the the new package that the Democrats are putting out. And the, the one thing she's trying to preserve or take out of the current bill is the angel of death loophole, which is a way for very rich people to pass on all of their money without um, the estate tax getting it. And I don't, I don't know the details of, of exactly how the law works. Um, I know that uh, lots of politicians on both sides have tried to remove this loophole because it's kind of ridiculous. Um, but apparently Heidi Heitkamp is leading the charge of, um, of other moderate former Democratic senators who are now lobbying on the, um, in the sidelines, kind of in the shadows to get this loophole preserved for whatever reason. And uh, it's just crazy. <laughs> I mean, she's, made, she's making a lot of uh, disingenuous arguments, but I think uh, when I saw that, that, that she was trying to, you know, stop a tax um, increase on, on rich people, um, I thought back to what Dustin said last two weeks ago, I guess. It was that uh, all the smart Democrats in North Dakota have become Republicans. So if she wants to lobby for helping the tax brackets of millionaires, why didn't she become a Republican instead of a lobbyist? She could she could slide right in. She could she would be right. You know, I think she could just slide right into the leadership of the Republican Party if she made a couple of nice speeches about Republicanism, and uh, and she would do great. She would do awesome. So why doesn't she just do that versus this lobbying effort to kill, which is, uh, you know, a very important bill that they're trying to get passed that is going to get watered down, it looks like, by the moderate Democrats, Manchin, and, and the other ones that are in office. That was my first thought. My second thought was there's a little, um, there's a slight bit of logic in, in what she's doing in the sense that, as we've all noticed, the Democratic Party in North Dakota is kind of dead, maybe fully dead. And now she's shifted her her gaze to the uh, the <laughs> the issues of dead people, the issues that only dead people care about, which is <laughs> what happens to my money when I die. Oh, oh, does it go to the two I wanted to? Oh, I'm very happy now. Thank you. I will vote for you in heaven, Heidi Heitkamp. So there, there's some strange, strange logic behind what she's doing. Which well, is that's the, that's the problem with the Democratic Party as a whole. <laughs> is they're not really at their core able to fight so many of the things that they bitch about. You know, they don't want corporate money, but they take corporate money. They don't want 
uh, you know, the state party does not take corporate money. Well, I I'm not saying state party, Shelley Ellie, at all. I'm not. I'm but just we're saying, talking about we're talking about North the North Dakota Democratic oh, well, Party. I, I'm just saying that North that the Democrats as a whole is what I'm talking about, and I'm talking about the fact that uh, you know we we just as a Democrat you you are torn. And it's showing up in our, you know, in our legislature, in our, in our national, federal, in our national legislature, not in North Dakota. I'm not talking about North Dakota, uh, that they just don't have the ability to stand on their laurels because they are so deeply indebted to the fossil fuel industry, to all of these industries that really, you know, basically keep the mainstream Democratic Party as an oligarchy. Yeah, I mean, I would I would say that this is Heidi sliding away from North Dakota Dems towards national stuff. I mean, obviously, as a, sen- a U.S. senator, she did national stuff, but I uh, don't really see this issue as controversial or I don't see like the state party like bumbling this issue. Um, people generally... Uh, want rich people to be taxed for the most part in the North Dakota Democratic Party, I would say. Um, I think, and Ryan, I mean, the answer to your question is like, uh, okay, there's two answers to your question. Um, The answer to the question of why she doesn't go become a Republican uh, in another state, I don't know. Uh, Maybe she doesn't want to, but she's she's not a viable Republican in North Dakota at all, on no level whatsoever. Um, so that, that idea that you have that, you know, she should just go ahead and switch teams. That's only really going to work if she's going to like move somewhere else, because, you know, the, the way the, the party system here is so very human, you know, you're brought up in a party, like you can't, you have to switch early, like John Hoven, you can't switch when you're in your sixties, like, or if you do, I mean, I just, I just think that doesn't really fly here. Maybe that flies in other States, but like, you know, this is a person who, you know, went to the state capitol day after day for years as a Democratic um, tax commissioner. You know, it's like this is not all of her. I mean, she's obviously friends to Republicans, too. But like the entire your entire life is built around a particular party and the other party wants nothing to do with you. And so I just really don't see the NDGOP being like, oh, cool, come on over. Like, no, they like hate her. Um, and so it's we just have to remember that politics in North Dakota is there's no anonymity. It's all very relational. Um, you're, you're haunted forever by everything you do. Um, of course people do forgive you for things occasionally, but what I mean is, is, you know, like you can get forgiven for driving drunk apparently, but you, you know, what I mean is, is like, people aren't going to forget that you voted against Kavanaugh. Like no one's going to forget that. So um, I just think that, Heidi has always been a centrist. That's just who and what she is. Um, and I say that I say that rather than the word moderate, although I do think moderate can be a fair word. But to me, centrist is more in relation to really liking the institutions as they are and being pretty much between the two parties. Um, to me, a moderate is a person who just weighs both sides and is thoughtful and tries to come to a smart conclusion, but may not be as invested in the institutions, may not really love the institutions much at all. Um, you know, so she is a centrist. And so 
Um, she has these centrist viewpoints where it, it looks like compromise or it looks like being politically moderate, but um, in, in a sense, depending on you know whether your two polls are progressivism and conservatism or national Dems and national Republicans. So her polls are national Dems and national Republicans at this point, and that's where centrist lands. They, they protect some of those tax haven type of things. And yet while being like, you know, a, a little bit progressive on a lot of social issues and being pretty neoliberal in the whole, um, this is how, who she's always been. So I think it's just, you know, it, to me, it's not that it's interesting. And I wasn't aware of this. I am aware of other things that she's doing that you'd probably approve of more, but, um, but yeah, I just, I don't really see this as a, a, maybe this is a really big change from young Heidi, but I don't see this as a big change from Senator Heidi. Well, um, I left out one thing, which was that uh, apparently, I haven't checked the, the, the citation on this, but apparently six months ago, she had described the angel of death loophole as one of the biggest scams in the history of forever. And so she has, she's literally switched her position over the last six months. Well, that's and, um, yeah, it's crazy. Um, I have a theory here without any any sort of substance behind it that that uh, her position is related to uh, applying the death tax more consistently to the mega rich in exchange for giving the family farm exemption more clout. Uh, You know, the, Mm -hmm. the family farm portion of the death tax has always been. a a democratic issue like getting rid of the death tax on family farms is is, has been a democrat position for 40 years so that's not a change at all um and and that involves increasing the level which used to be i think four million dollars and then it got up to like six or eight and there has been talk of moving it up to like 25 Uh, and and my guess is that it has to do with exchanging you know, hitting Jeff Bezos in exchange for giving the family farmers a break. That would be my guess as to where she's actually going with it. I think um, you're right. I, I, that was, I didn't know how to explain it. I don't, I don't understand it as well as you, but I had a hunch with similar. Yeah. I think you're onto something. I mean, the, the death tax would, it, the easiest way to get rid of the death tax would be to actually, well, I mean, Philosophically, it's a problem because, you know, we tax people when they're alive. Why should we tax them again? Um, and if if all of the taxes hit the people that they were intended to when they were alive, there would be no reason for a death tax. But because Jeff Bezos or whoever your your uh, evil bond villain of the week on, on progressive tax policy is uh, gets out of it. Then you got to create this other mechanism that hits him and lots of other people that you don't actually want to hit, which is the problem with with using tax policy to create social justice. Because in order to get the people you want to, to hit, you have to hit people you don't want to hit. And, uh, you know, so so that would be my guess. And as far as Heidi switching parties, I think the Republicans would be more open to it than our own family. So, um, Ryan, do you know, is she working for a PAC now or? Um, I, I think she's a she's um, a private um, lobbyist now. I don't know what her firm is called. 
I did get some information on, on your on your numbers there, Dustin. Apparently, the the proposal started at one million per spouse. Um, so they everything below a million was exempted from the death tax, and then they raised it to two million, and now apparently Heidi's working to get set to five million per spouse. Which uh, is still a lot. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't but, know. But remember, five million. You know, for, if if you worked all your life and you're making good money, you know, they say you can't retire with less than three million in your your four hundred one k. So five million would seem to be. And and farmers, their four hundred one k is their farm. You know, it it's the value of the land. I mean, in North Dakota, the easiest way to to fix the death tax would be to let farmers. Uh, use real corporate structures to protect themselves, you know, yeah. rather than the, the fake family farm LLC actually use a corporation as an estate planning tool uh, that the family members get shares. And then the government doesn't have access to it when, when the original person dies, because it's not their property. It's, it's a shareholder thing. So North Dakota's anti-corporate farming policy actually opens up farmers to losing more due to the death tax than otherwise would happen. Interesting loophole. So Dustin, what, what do you think the percentage of, uh, now I'm going to use real family farms are to the other type of farm? Real. Um, Real, Where I mean, generations working as young as real farmers, not those hardly exist anymore. That's what I'm I mean. Saying. My, my, my grandpa, who owned 600 acres north of Regent, never had more than 40 head of cattle and raised all the crops to feed his own cattle, plus some to sell, never netted more than $30,000 in a year. Um, those kind of farmers don't exist anymore. They were pushed out and, and you know, the, the biggest pusher, the, the biggest destroyer of the true family farm as historically thought of is the farm program, because the farm program of subsidies at the federal level incentivizes right. having a bigger and bigger farm. So if you're against consolidation of, of farms and the death of the family farm, uh, the, the federal farm program has probably been the biggest instigator of that uh, overall policy, because it, you can't. You can't benefit if you've only got a thousand acres. You're not going to be bringing in enough to support yourself. You got to have ten thousand acres, and to do that, you got to buy out your your five closest neighbors. And uh, so, so that's why you see all these mega farms, especially out in the eastern part of the state, uh, because the farm program uh, incentivizes uh, economies of scale even more than the market does. So, you know. The, the the true family farm very very few and far between anymore. Yeah, that's what uh, I, that's what I'm saying. So what you know the the argument that she has that it's protecting family farms is bullshit argument. Then right? Because the 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 phrase has changed its meaning. Like now a family farm is it uh, to me. It, so so the old idea of a family farm is that the family works in the farm. The modern idea of family farm is that the family's financial future depends on the farm, whether or not the family actually does the farming or not. So, so if, 
if you have people who are relying on that farm, that's the family farm. Because in North Dakota, you can't do you can't set up a corporate structure that is outside of of I think it's second cousins now. They opened it up to recently, but until then it was first cousins. Um, you can't you can't do an actual business, and so so we in North Dakota we got two problems. We got this anti this this absolute fear of corporations owning farms, which prevents family farms from becoming more productive and more efficient uh, from a uh, management standpoint. And then we have the federal farm program, which incentivizes bigger farms. And, and so eventually those things are going to collide and, and there's going to be some, some issues, but um, you know, the, the, when, when people talk about family farms now, that just means that somebody has been uh, operating that farm in a family for multiple generations. doesn't mean that the family as a, as a whole is still doing it. Uh, just somebody can trace their lineage back, you know, three, four, five generations. Interesting. Yeah, it, it's it's because my my family, my dad had 360 acres, and uh, he raised four kids, and uh, we had basically 15 cows, and we milked four of them. So, you know, that was. But he had to take a job you know, to supplement uh, his income in order to live. And uh, so I, I, I'm kind of curious that the whole North Dakota agricultural situation is the way it is. I mean, it's like uh, pretty, pretty hard to justify a lot of this, a lot of these laws and a lot of this, like you said, for the federal government to basically award somebody for having a bigger farm instead of awarding somebody for striving to keep their farm in place. Um, you know, it, it's like you said, it's, it's two counter concepts going at each other. And um, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. The North Dakota law limits the ability of, of small farm of, of actual family farms to be able to protect themselves legally and and perpetuate themselves and and the federal law incentivizes consolidation so so at the end of the day because of those two those both those laws work together to eliminate the family farm yeah you 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 make a great point dustin uh, you make a great point because it's just an un, unreal you know where we're at so and the anti corporate farming movement was a democratic movement starting in the 60s it's just that they didn't understand and maybe the the concept of a corporation was different back then you know now maybe back then you had more businesses that were still under the sole proprietorship llc's didn't exist so a corporation back then was a big business yeah. but now a corporation is not a big business you know just because you have corporate articles of incorporation doesn't mean that you're a a, a big deal you know, it's just a a legal mechanism to that that is has been utilized primarily to protect people from tax law and from a state law. Yeah, well, I, I think the the federal subsidies is a is a great um, 
A great place to pivot. Uh, I'd like to see the Democratic Party pivot to, to removing the subsidies from um, farming, which would be a, 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 an about face. <laughs> but uh, they do go to the biggest farm. So during COVID, when everything shut down, it was the, the richest farmers got the most subsidies. The farmers that were barely making ends meet were committing suicide, literally. Um, so it, that's the, that was the dichotomy. Uh, either you're committing suicide or you're, you're having a good year because you have a huge farm and the federal government subsidizes most of it. Mm-hmm. And so it's 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 messed up. It's totally messed up from from the values we say we hold. Um, and it was a COVID was a great time to reassess that because you shouldn't be the subsidies. If there are going to be subsidies, should be helping the farmers that are barely making it. Um, I think the the subsidies based on corn, so we can create ethanol, so we can be more renewable, uh, need to go away because ethanol is a scam uh, as far as the renewable energy side of things is considered. It doesn't actually help the environment. It's um, it's a way for certain people to get rich. Um, and Archer Daniel loves it. Who? Archer Daniel. Who's Archer Daniel? Well, they're the largest corn uh, processing company in the country. Right. The corn lobby loves it. It's great for the corn lobby. Um, so, and, and those are larger questions that kind of, you know, if if the subsidy program wasn't the way it was, maybe the anti-corporate farming would, would have more um, of an effect in North Dakota. Um, but it, I think Dustin nailed it. Uh, it's those two two factors together really um, remove any teeth from that law to and totally upend any intent that was meant to help family farms in the in the beginning when that was passed. And it's sad uh, that, that that's the way it works out, and we're unable to see the subtlety in the in the way those two laws kind of interact. Um, we got about ten minutes here uh, on the schedule call, guys. Um, I think it would be good to transition into some checkout thoughts. We never did talk too much about 9-11. Um, I'm not sure if anyone wants to open up um, on their on their um, remembrances. It's for me, you know, I was living in North Dakota at that time. And so we're very far removed from any personal impacts. Uh, most of us, unless you had relatives. Um, I had a, my stepfather was actually in Washington, D.C., so he, he saw the, the one plane go into the Pentagon. And um, so he was somewhat connected to it personally. But, you know, what I remember on 9-11 is everything that happened after 9-11. Um, and, and, and to me, most of it was bad, um, whether you're talking about surveillance or um, the war on terror, the never-ending wars. Um, our reaction to 9-11 is kind of where my remembrance goes and, and um, something I think we still need to work work towards perfecting um, or bettering. Perfection is probably out the window, but bettering our response to, to, the, uh, to the terror attacks. Um, we, we had a... See, at, at the time of 9-11, if uh, like Iran was in total sympathy with us for what happened. Um, All these countries rallied with us and our government chose to just get revenge. There wasn't any thought of, boy, this is an awakening. We got to figure this out. Why did these people do it? What was their rationale for doing it? What can we do to dig into that rationale? None of that. It's just like, oh, these were Muslims. Let's go to war with Muslim countries, even though, you know, most all 19 of them were Saudis. 
we didn't do anything to Saudi Arabia. And we went after, you know, I mean, Ben Laden, of course, he, he was in Afghanistan. And actually, the Taliban was willing to give him up. And we didn't take it. So to me, you're, you're right, Ryan, it doesn't give me any kind of sentimental, oh, we were great, or we are great. It gives me nothing but boy, we just acted like a bunch of little babies and just, you know, because 9-11s happen every day in Afghanistan. 9-11s happen every day in the Philippines. 9-11 happens every day with all these countries in Yemen and all these countries that every day is a 9-11 for them. And yet we have one, one issue, one incident that completely changes our concept of democracy and who we are as a country. And so for me, I don't have any fond, oh gosh, we were great. We stood up and we went back to business and we went back to buying stuff, bullshit. So that's yeah. all feeling about 9-11. Yeah, Norton, I think that that's, um, yeah, the revenge on a, a convenient scapegoat as, uh, <laughs> um, angle was terrible. Um, also, what I find, you know, increasingly terrible was what um, what our government asked of regular people, which was uh, just go buy a bunch of stuff, keep consuming, and then forget about uh, what we're doing. Just don't don't worry about it. We got this covered. And so, and you know, the other reactions, you know, World War Two, World War One, it was more of let's all come together, let's sacrifice. We have a common enemy. Uh, we need you to stop, you know, eating sugar as much. You know, th there was like actual common sacrifice. Whereas with this, with this um, turn in history, there wasn't common sacrifice. There was very specific sacrifice. And then for the rest of us, just keep buying stuff. And uh, <laughs> and so everyone became dis. You know, that was the start of the disconnection of, between people and communities. Was was nine eleven? I think um, if you look back from everything that came afterwards. Uh, this real disconnect of, of community, of, of being a part of something bigger than yourself. We had a very small subset of people that actually sacrificed by going to war, by serving the military in whatever fashion um, fit them. And then the rest of us just bought stuff. And uh, and then it just kept going on and on and on. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were being surveilled. And um, it, it just... They, so many things just fractured at that moment that how you, how you be able to put it back together. I think we got to go back to the idea of, um, like Norton said, we had a chance for unity, world unity to a degree, and we chose a different path and, and it not only fractured the global unity that had emerged for a brief moment there, but it also fractured maybe indelibly the, um, the community unity uh, of, of the United States as a country. Um, because of the different ways that we kind of fractured from that moment. And that was a lot of what President Bush was talking about in, the, in his speech yesterday was that moment of unity and how we squandered it. And, uh, you know, you want to scream at President Bush, be like, yeah, you squandered lots of that. <laughs> you did part of that squandering. Um, but we, we people did, regular people did too. And um, whether it was because we fell into consumerism and kind of forgot about what was happening, which is it's very easy, that's... The, the beauty of, of, of buying stuff and consuming stuff is it's a, a temporary distraction from the things in your life that suck. And uh, we just kept doing that and then f forgot to think about the world and our place in the world and our place in our communities. And um, 
So I think that's what I think about in 9-11 is like, how do we get back to a better path, a better path for forward for everybody, not just Americans, but the world. And, um, and we just can't buy our way out of it. <laughs> you know, that's, that's my beef with uh, the, uh, the climate change um, crisis right now is that um, we have a lot of Democrats that are well-meaning and well-intended Democrats that just want to build back better, build back greener. Um, but I think you can't grow your way out of environmental catastrophe. You have to actually change the, your, you got to change the way you're behaving as well as maybe change a couple of things uh, infrastructure wise, but it's a behavioral cultural change before it's a technology change. You can't grow your way out of a climate crisis that's precipitated by growth. You have to have a different mindset. And until we break out of the growth mindset um, from an economic standpoint, and think about some alternate cyclical um, arrangement, we're going to struggle um, intellectually to understand how to approach these large scale um, catastrophes that have no single cause, but a, a multitude of small causes. And uh, I'll stop talking at that point. We're already at three o'clock. Um, Dustin, Ellie, any checkout thoughts? Well, I'll just say that to your, your a statement about growth until the house of cards that relies on growth collapses, that's not going to happen. You know, you've got to have a collapse that is 10 times as bad as 2008 before people realize that this growth for growth's sake is, is not sustainable. I mean, even at the local level, you know, part of the reason that we are looking at eliminating special assessments and ending the practice of letting developers use the city as a bank for their infrastructure in their developments is because those, those developments are only bringing in 90% of what they need to bring in to sustain themselves and, and, not, and zero of what they need to bring in to, to help the existing uh, infrastructure. So right now, a very few people know it yet, but in Bismarck, if you've been living here for 20 years and own a house, there's no reason that you should be in favor of, of growing population. And because the, the financial structure of growth is not benefiting you. I mean, right now we got the, the city mills are going to go up 6%. And the county mills are going to go up like 17%. Uh, and, and people are going to, and on top of your valuation increases, people are going to pay more because we don't have a, a model where the growth actually helps the existing residents. And um, nobody even realizes that that's a problem yet because it's been created into this, this dichotomy of, of, well, liberals are against sprawl. Well, sprawl is a misnomer because it doesn't explain what the real problem is. The problem is not that the city's footprint is getting bigger. It's that, that that added property is not uh, is adding more liability to the books than it's taking off. And so uh, the sprawl is in the finances, not the land being developed. Uh, and, and somewhere along the line, this idea that only the you know hippies are against land development uh, seeped into not allowing anybody to see that the math doesn't work, <laughs> you know, and, and that's what there's a problem now. Uh, and, and that feeds into the build back better thing, because 
Biden's plan is to build out and give give money to add roads when, in fact, most areas should probably not add roads. You know, just fix what you have, figure out a way to to afford what you have before you build anything new. I don't yeah, know if no. I have to. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I don't no, have too many checkout thoughts. So go ahead. Uh, no. that, that'll be it for me. <laughs> Thanks, Ellie. Uh, I, I didn't have any, any more than, than to say that. Yeah, I think Dustin's uh, point of view gets lost in the in the sprawl argument because sprawl, sprawl is. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if uh, all liberals are against sprawl, but it's just it's ugly sometimes, especially you go to Fargo. Fargo is. is um, is the example in North Dakota of where the sprawl just got, it's just ugly to drive around. A lot of Fargo is just really ugly, um, just to look at, drive through, live in. And uh, and part of Bismarck, parts of Bismarck are starting to look like Fargo in that sense. Um, but what doesn't get talked about is is Dustin's point of view, which is, is the sprawl paying for itself? Because that's the point, you know, that's what the politicians, when they're like, yes, we were going to court these big businesses to come in, or we're going to court this developer to develop this part of our city. That's their thought process that, hey, we're going to get more tax revenue. It's going to help everybody because now there'll be more in the pot to do all the things we got to do at the city level. And so that's what they're thinking when they when they, when they court. Uh, and then Dustin's point of view never gets brought up, which is what happens if it doesn't if the math doesn't work out? What happens if we actually end up everyone has to put more into the pot? to to accommodate this growth <laughs> then uh then that's a different that's a way different conversation um because then it, it becomes you know you see the unsustainability of that because you're you, there where do you stop you're gonna you're gonna contract parts of your city so that everyone um everyone's value goes up uh that would be crazy but <laughs> i i agree with dustin that we, we probably should get rid of more roads than we should build or the other thought would be build roads that don't break every couple of years that we have to repair. Um, I, I'm not a concrete um, mason, but I think there's a way to make concrete that, that lasts longer than what we're doing right now. It seems like it's it's always um, being repaired. You, you get put more in, into the base underneath of it so that there's more gravel underneath and so it has a little bit more bounce. And if there's more cushion underneath the concrete, it'll last longer. My grandpa taught me that Years so ago. how long, Dustin, has development developers run Bismarck? Since the late seventies. Yeah, I, I mean that's the that's the key point. The developers all of a sudden, uh, what's his name, has this whole area on the east side of mm -hmm. uh, of uh, Bismarck, and all of a sudden, all development went into that. Um, all of a sudden, there's this developer on the west side of Bismarck, and all the new building, all the new businesses went into that. And everything gets sucked out of the core of Bismarck, and now we're all paying for it. So it's just, man, you, you, you really hit a good nail there if we could just understand that. as a, But the city doesn't run because of logic they run because of developers well and and this idea that so so you know it density gets brought up and density is part of it in that if you're building houses that are 250 feet apart you're using more more resources than if they were 100 feet or 50 feet you know the the old 
low-valued properties in the middle of town don't use as many resources because they're closer together. You're getting more single-family homes on the one block. Uh, the uh, the funny thing, you know, the ugly parts of Fargo, you know, which South 45th with all the four-story apartments, those are not the problem. Those are those are bringing it in a lot of money based on their footprint because they got more density. So those are actually not the problem. It's it's and neither are you know homes that are six hundred thousand dollars or more because they're bringing in enough revenue to compensate for themselves. It it's actually when you get into the the oddly enough, and this is this is part of why we don't have affordable housing is that. Uh, uh, $250,000 houses on half acre lot does not bring in its share to pay the, the bill. So the math doesn't work for a middle-class family to own a home because of the way that the thing is set up. And, and we've allowed it to get out of control. The, the developers running the city goes back to the days when nobody wanted to develop in Bismarck. In the late 70s, early 80s, Bismarck was dying. It was not a place that you wanted to go. Uh, and the city actually had to in- create this model of, if you guys come here and develop, we'll help you finance your in-ground infrastructure. Uh, so the developers running the city actually started on the city's end. The, the city was begging them to come in. And when you beg somebody to come in, you're begging somebody to control you. And, you, you know, we got all these city fathers that are, are looked at as being very respectful. And they were dealing with a different set of circumstances. They didn't have growth. They didn't have crime. They didn't have all these other things. And they wanted to create the growth. And so they put these incentives in and never, never uh, created an exit strategy. It's just like a war, you know, economic development. We, you know, it, it sounds great, but nobody ever defines when your economy is developed. There's no end point. <laughs> You know, if we're developing something, it, eventually it's over, right? But not when you're talking economic <laughs> development, because it economic development is stacking one incentive on top of another, on top of, of another to get something to happen that wouldn't normally happen. And so by not letting the market just do what it does, we've dug ourselves a hole by trying to force it to do something it wasn't necessarily made to do. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I want to... Um... You know, it's basically a blank check. Economic mm-hmm. development is a blank check. Um, I want to go back to your point about uh, the single-family uh, middle-class houses, the two hundred fifty, the three hundred fifty thousand dollars houses that predominate Bismarck's housing market for new new development. Those are the ones that are the, <laughs> the culprits. Is that, yeah. is that that's that's your um, that's your premise? So how how would you? Is it just a matter of the lots are too big? They gotta get more uh, in in per development, um, or what? What what would be the fix? Because it seems like uh, that's the house everybody wants to build. That's the house everyone wants to buy. Um, so uh, that's the, there's the market pressure. But how would you how would you fix it from a, um, a development standpoint to make them pay for themselves? There has to be an understanding that having what you want is not going to be at the price that you want, and the it could change with a lot sizes and, and really the biggest culprit is because we uh, keep annexing more, more and more land. There's this, this 
entitlement mentality that if the developer develops on the edge of town, that eventually the city is going to move out and encapsulate them. And so you're buying this area that is quasi rural, knowing that at some point it's going to be brought in. Like if it were up to me, we would we would establish a 30 year freeze on annexation. We would well, we would annex everything that we have uh, already put money into. People don't understand that the city spends money to put in streets and sewer and those sort of things in areas outside of the city limits, uh, and then holds them in what's called abeyance, and and then everybody else carries the interest until the uh, the the area gets annexed in. So we should annex in immediately everything that we have put uh, services into, and then put a, a 30 year freeze on no more annexation. You got to use what you have. If you build your development outside the city limits, we're not going to subsidize you. We're not going to finance you. And you better not expect us to bring you in anytime soon. And that would go a long way to also fixing the extraterritorial zoning issue between the city and the county uh, in, in the way that the city imposes its zoning regulations and building regulations on uh, areas that are outside the city limits. And that, that's a power the state gave to the city. So the city of Bismarck has a, a four mile zone outside of the city where really residents are subject to city regulation, but don't have a vote in city elections. Uh, and so we have a regulation without representation issue when it comes to that. So if developers weren't incentivized to build out on the fringe and weren't get allowed to be to think that they're entitled to come in once they do build, it will allow it will force the developers to use the land that's already in the city limits and use it more efficiency efficiently to maximize their own profits. And so if the city policy was to incentivize developers to maximize their own profits by maximizing the, the density, uh, it would increase the profits of the private developers and it would help alleviate the problem with that development not paying its full load when it comes into the city. So everybody wins. You know, the, the fix is a is a win-win situation where developers make more money per lot and the city gets more tax revenue per lot, but but Getting it, getting that implemented, is next to impossible because nobody wants to say we're not going to grow, we're not going to expand that line anymore. You know, it's like it's it's they know that there's a problem, but they just don't want to go there. Yeah, well, that's a great fix, Dustin. You should run for mayor. But I think you're right that the, a crisis point has to be reached before they're able to start um, having the eyes to see um, new solutions to problems they don't they don't want to look at at the moment. And so, I mean, I think it, it would be a win-win. But there's a lot of people that have bought uh, speculative land um, right outside of Bismarck, and they're holding it, and it's doing nothing. It's just there. They're holding it, and the idea that you know Bismarck's going to keep growing, so pretty soon I'm going to be rich. This is my 401k, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so those people would be pissed, and they, you know, and, and we're in this pro-growth mindset that um, no one's going to question it until something happens that um, makes them question it. So unfortunately, you have a proactive solution to a problem that's about to appear, and, uh, and no one wants to hear it. Well, it's not just about to appear. I mean, in 2018, we passed the half-cent sales tax to pay for arterial roadways, 
because the problem's already here. We don't have the tax revenue to build out the roads to get to these developments and to build build them as big as they need to be to service those developments. And so the problem is already here. And like my solution just stops the bleeding. Like it, it's it's a carterizing thing. You still have to uh, right size the the rest of the financial model for what you have, but even but you have to you have to put a a wall up to block any more uh, liabilities from from seeping in. In order to to do that, you got to have an endpoint so that you know that your financial model is based on a finite size of city limits uh, and until that happens and until the city does not think that the only metric that matters is growth and higher population uh none of this will happen right so they're basically nickel and diamond s right now so you got a half cent there property yeah taxes keep and going up especially. in the next five years we're going to have to vote on another full cent sales tax uh our, our proposal to eliminate special assessments includes a quarter cent uh, sales tax to, to bring down the monthly fee for everybody. The people that want to build a $120 million rec center up north, they want a half cent. And then the city needs another quarter cent to pay for its new police station slash public health building that's going to go somewhere. And so you got a full cent there that's going to be put before the voters at, within the next five years for sure. Uh, and and that's because people are already seeing their, their property taxes are going up, but yet that's not enough to cover all the things that the, that the people are demanding. And the city in its infinite wisdom believes that it has to give everybody everything that it wants because no, we, we're not allowed to let the private sector actually fulfill these needs. You know, having two YMCAs is not enough. The, the city has to have its own YMCA at $100 million because for whatever reason, there's a certain constituency that believes that if the city doesn't own it, then it's not as good as it could be. Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what the voters, how the voters react to such um, proposals. You know, I, I I looked at the plans for that for that rec center, and uh, there's some good stuff in there. Uh, we do. I'm a basketball player, so I enjoy the 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 rec, the World War Memorial Building uh, down in downtown Bismarck. And the great thing about the rec is that it's free. Anybody can go in there and play basketball, and uh, you can just show up, and, and there'll be random people playing. And it's it's nice for a community sense. You know, when I lived in New York City. You would go to the playgrounds, um, and there'd be great basketball games pretty much year year round, just pickup games, and it was a great way to meet people, you know, participate in the community, and it was all free. You didn't have to pay for anything. Where the Y model sucks is that you got to have this uh, membership. Um, they do subsidize certain um, populations, but you have to have a membership to go there, and and, and they got um, other stipulations. So they have a center where you could go and, and have, you know, kind of chance encounters with uh, in athletic pursuits is nice um, and, and a part of a, a, a thriving community. Where I didn't like that proposal, however, was where they wanted to build it, which was up in the north part of Bismarck, where all the rich people live. <laughs> all the people that already go to the Y, now they've got a, another center just for them closer. How nice. 
But uh, and and it was not going to be free. I mean, the, the right, hundred million dollar bond free. was exactly. just to build the building. The the operating expense was going to be membership, so it was going to still cost the same as a Y membership. Right. It was another. It was a new Y for the for the rich part of Bismarck um, that the city built. Right. <laughs> So uh, it, it, it was a good idea. It started as a good idea, and then it morphed into this other thing where I was like, um, maybe it's not the best idea anymore because it should be in the middle of Bismarck and it should be free. And maybe it doesn't have to be as big, but you know, the constraint of building it in Bismarck would actually make it cooler because that's the part of Bismarck you want people to congregate around. And and if you have a smaller uh, footprint to work within, Maybe you 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 it forces some sort of um, cool design or innovation that you could you know build upon, um, but no, we got to go to North Bismarck <laughs> and then have this huge sprawling. Con- you know, it was crazy big. It was like, oh wow, yeah, do we need Taj Mahal? Mahal. And, 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 and my suggestion was, for all that, you could build a couple, like <laughs> wide span, hundred by uh, three hundred foot buildings and plop them down in various parts of town. You know, the biggest thing, this is the the rec center was kind of a Trojan horse to build more publicly financed hockey space. Because hockey, these hockey families believe that they shouldn't have to pay for their own uh, sport because it's not, because uh, there's so many kids that don't have access to ice in Bismarck apparently. And they have to get up at four in the morning and go play uh they believe that they should be provided that ice and like i've been told that their bismarck mandan needs 12 sheets of ice to accommodate all the extra hockey players that there are well you know it's a very expensive sport you know probably second only to golfing as far as expense and and yet the people involved who are already spending all this money on playing their sport think that everybody else should accommodate them. Um, you know, and and from the aspect of, of creating activity, that's fine, but it's a very expensive activity. And so if the people who play it can't figure out a way to cover the bulk of the cost themselves or find a, a beneficiary that like Chad Walker, who added on to the the Schomburg arena with with their money, um, you know, and that was all, that was, I believe, ninety percent privately financed. The, right. the park district kicked in a little bit, but not the bulk of it. If it, if you can't find that model, then then the demand isn't real. The, you know, it you can only you can only uh, you know subsidize entertainment so long, and and you know. It, it, you can't have it be available for everybody because if you give everybody everything they want, we can't afford that. That's for damn sure. Well, that, that's you, a you thing bring, called privilege. <laughs> well, you bring up a good point how the how the cer- certain sports drive the development on the back end are kind of under under the under the covers a little bit. Mm-hmm. So yeah, youth hockey is huge. These these fam- these hockey families they're they're flying they're flying all over the country to play hockey at like mm-hmm. you know, in grade school. Hockey, grade school hockey around the country, and, uh, and and great. You know, if I was a kid playing hockey, that's that's fucking awesome. But uh, it's a lot of expense for the parents, so that it it kind of um, it closes off that experience to a certain um, subset of people. And then you're right that they want infrastructure in their own hometown, 
And so the, the sports that, um, have the, uh, the most, uh, the, the richest patrons that play those sports tend to be the ones that get developed by our, our city. So I, I think of it, there's the hockey, there's hockey, and then there's tennis. We have a shit ton of tennis courts and they're always climbing, you know, clamor, clamoring for more tennis, tennis spaces in Bismarck. Uh, because they have a very active uh, membership and uh, they 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 lobby for their for their cause as does hockey mm -hmm. and um the sports that don't lobby as much don't get as much infrastructure so basketball which you just got to have a ball and maybe some nice shoes uh they no one no one's lobbying for basketball courts and so if you try to play outside in, ba in bismarck uh, uh outside basketball pick up basketball outside there's there's one court in the entire city and chad walker built it and uh, the city ain't building shit for basketball. <laughs> it right. would take a miracle to, to for them to build an outside basketball court. Um, you know, part of that's that it's cold in Bismarck, but um, you can still play half of the year or maybe even more if you if you're you're tough. But the, those well, and, and a, a, a one fourth of uh, in the original plan for that that rec center, a quarter of the uh, square footage was dedicated to something called pickleball, which apparently is the new fad for senior citizens. <laughs> well. You don't need a fancy building for that. Just put up a steel building and, and do it that way. You can probably spend $5 million and give them all the pickleball courts that they could ever want. I mean, it, it, but they added that in so that, that could be the sales pitch to the 60 plus crowd and the voting side, because not only do we have to pander to the people who want these things, we have to pander to the people who we want to vote for these things. And so it becomes this monstrosity and it's in an area of town where someone like you doesn't want it to be. So, you know, nobody's really happy, but everybody got what they want. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, would, it was defeated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Luckily. I was asked to play pickleball, but, it creeped me out because it's all old people. <laughs> so I didn't do it. Well, it might be fun, Norton. It's good well, to, it's it to stretch like yourself. Fun. I'm, I'm not saying it looks like fun. I'd like to do it, but it's just like that makes me one of them. And I, I couldn't do it. <laughs> well, because I don't, I don't fit into Bismarck somehow. So anyway, I think we've all gathered that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for that, Dustin. Glad I said nice thing about you. What you were saying? Yeah, I'm. I'm just joking, man. Well, sports is a good way to uh, to uh, blow off some steam, Norton. So it might be a good a good outlet for some of your aggression to take it out on that pickle <laughs> that pickleball. That poor pickleball. I don't even know what happens in pickleball. Is there a racket involved with pickleball? Yeah, yeah. it's like it's like that racket. It's like ping pong on a ten, on a half size tennis court, basically. Yeah. And and I think that Norton's probably he would probably cause all these old people to break their hips, run after the ball <laughs> or something, and then he'd feel bad that you know they broke their hips. <laughs> it's all about the hips with old people, right? Hey, my hips, my hips are sore. I'm only middle-aged. Hips are important.